If so, um, you work in the hottest startups in Munich. I, I'm saying work because they are not startups anymore, right? Personio and now Freeletics. Yeah. Um, they're, the, those are amazing, amazing brands, amazing companies today. Um, and on the other hand, you run pretty interesting blog that got me thinking about the mental models, about the psychology, uh, all of that kind of stuff could be applied at, on a daily basis as yeah. a work of leader. So it's, it must be super helpful at your, at your role. Um, so we have a lot of things to discuss. Today. Yeah. Nice. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Ben, so maybe let's start with the basics. Uh, what do you do at the Freeletics? Yeah, well, so I'm managing director of venture development at Freeletics. Uh, what that basically means is that um, I'm responsible for everything that we want to develop as a new product from you know very early concepts to building uh, a whole business unit potentially if it works out, right? So it's really just extending our, our business and product portfolio and doing that in, in the leanest way possible. That in a nutshell is basically my responsibility. So is it like a building startup inside of the company? Yeah, you could say so. I mean, it depends a little bit on the scale of the project, uh, obviously, but um, that is also what we've done, right? Building intrapreneurially, uh, building a new new venture. And um, so, yeah, it depends a little bit, as I said, on the scale of the project. But yeah, you could say so. It's it's a startup within a startup, or as you said, not startup anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's like bringing back the early startup spirit to uh, pockets of, of that company that we're in now. Okay, cool. And like, could, me, could you give me an example? Like, uh, what is this team set up? How do you do it? What is your daily work here? Like how to be, you build it from scratch with, and with whom? Yeah, sure. So it depends on, so when we're talking about both team setup as well as work on a daily basis, as well as I would say, things like uh, you know KPIs that we track and, and goals that we have and so on. It depends on, on two things mainly. One is the kind of product that we're building or the kind of project <clears throat> that we have at hand is one. And the other one is the state of the project that it's in, right? So with the previous um, project that didn't work out, unfortunately, we uh, spent quite some time building uh, uh, you know, a whole full-fledged team or actually a whole full-fledged business unit um, with multiple full-stacked teams, right? So uh, the team working on that was basically a small company within a company, right? It was dozens of people uh, for all functions. <clears throat> so, um, and we built that gradually over uh, months uh, and quarters, uh, just depending on the state of the project, right? So starting with, you know, early product conceptualization and then design and then you add more and more tech and then you add more and more marketing and so on. Uh, right now, what we're working on um, is it's in its infancy state, let's say. So it's really just a handful of T-shaped people um, where we really dive deep into product concept and actually building the product like hands-on um, with a little bit of freelance support. Um, and building all of the go-to-market strategy uh, from the ground up, building all of the product strategy from the ground up, um, and really just trying to figure out how that you know new product will look like. Um, and once we hit the market with it and get first feedback, then we'll also scale up the team depending on 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 the needs that we see. Right? Do we want to, you know, 
pivot the product a little bit? Do we want to extend it a little bit? That means, you know, specific product uh, type resources, specific product skills that we will need. Um, do we think that, hey, you know, product market fit is pretty good and this is all about scaling? Then we'll add a lot more marketing resources to it. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's basically it right now. A bunch of T-shaped people with some uh, support also from our specific internal functions. Um, and then we, we scale it and change it uh, as we go. Okay. Um, we talked before about the previous venture, which didn't work out, but of course this happened. This is really sure. difficult. Yeah. Um, and maybe you could tell a few words about the product itself, because this is not typical. You create like the whole ecosystem. Because yeah. your previous, previous venture was like the whole ecosystem and it's super difficult probably to get the, the things work. And you said like dozens of, dozens of people work yeah, right, yeah, for like yeah. quite a while. Right? Yeah, yeah. So maybe you can tell about the, 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 the product and, and how it was. Yeah. Yeah. So the previous venture uh, that we built is called Stadium. And so we um, set out to build a highly gamified at-home strength training experience that merges game-like experience with serious strength training, right? Um, so our main hypothesis was that there is an open space, almost a vacuum in the market, where serious strength training meets highly gamified, almost game-like experiences. Uh, in a market that is or has been and still is being dominated by more instructor-led motivational content, right? Where the, the Pelotons of the world come in or Apple Fitness Plus come in and so on. And we wanted to merge highly gamified experiences with um, serious strength training, so not cardio training, which is a little bit easier for, for various reasons, cardio training that is. So... That was our main hypothesis. And for that, we knew that we needed to build a bunch of technology from you know, motion tracking to weight detection. We needed to ship our own hardware and develop our own uh, dumbbell system, all of which we did, right? So we successfully developed all of the technology we needed. We still believe that it's the best movement tracking technology that exists in the market. Um, we spend a lot of time really perfecting uh, the, the hardware, the dumbbells, the adjustable dumbbells. Um, that we had, that we still have, and we will keep selling, um, of course, because they're a really great product. Um, and yeah, so we try to bring all of these things together and we build a team. We develop the product. Early prototypes are very, uh, very promising. Um, we got a bunch of uh, good feedback, but also, you know, uh, we did this in an environment where, uh, due to uh, the I would say the consequences and second order consequences of COVID and all of the lockdowns and uh, especially in Asia um, we had huge supply chain issues right where we had to push the launch like basically on a on a monthly basis right so we wanted to launch early uh, 2022 and then we had to push it to spring then we had to push it to summer to fall to winter uh, and so on. And that was primarily, not only, but primarily due to supply chain issues. And so as with, you know, all ventures, I mean, you know this, right? So as with all ventures, there comes a certain point where uh, you need to take a step back and say, okay, um, can we continue on that path? And can we continue funding it to the point where we then become profitable, which will be 
much later than we had initially planned in our business plan because of all of these delays, as well as, you know, uh, certain changes in the dynamics of the market in terms of consumer behavior, uh, post-COVID and so on? Or do we say, no, we need to, you know, pivot or even pull the plug, uh, basically, despite the product being very promising, but uh, the time just not being being right uh, anymore. And then we, it was really hard, right? But we took the decision to basically pull the plug and um, say, okay, you know, um, this has been very promising and we need to regard everything as sunk cost by now. Um, but from where we are now, we, it's, it wouldn't be prudent to continue financing that with that changed uh, timeline uh, and that changed uh, business plan. So long story short, um, we built, I think, a fantastic product with a fantastic team and super exciting brand. Um, and we just uh, made it to shipping first product customers, even got great feedback from first customers. And then we had to basically retract um, the product. But yeah, it's, it's, part, of, it's part of venture building. Um, you know, I think 90% plus of, of ventures and 95% of ventures fail. Um, and that was also a big learning for us, but um, both from a product development perspective, so in terms of the technology that we built, there is a lot um, that we can take for our existing products and future products, as well as from a process and people perspective uh, in terms of you know how we work and how we can uh, develop something from scratch zero to one. Uh, we also gained a lot of learnings that we will apply in the future and that I'm certain will make us um, even a lot better at developing products in the future than we have been. And how do you decide or how do you measure? Because like during those two years, um, you had for sure some OKRs, you had for sure some objectives and measures which you followed and you change over time, right? So maybe could you tell about the stages of the product and what kind of KPIs, objectives do you follow? And at the end, I'm super interested, like, when do you decide to, you know, put the project into the drawer and say, like, hey, we need to stop it. it let's, let's, you know, maybe wait for a better time. Um, and we need to stop it, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good question. So when it comes to uh, tracking of KP KPIs um, and OKRs, so for this venture, we didn't work with OKRs. Uh, because we didn't feel that, I mean, we do work with uh, OKRs and I've always been working with OKRs for Latics generally. I think as so many companies do, but my personal opinion also on OKRs is that <clears throat> it can also be a false friend because it gives you a sense of, you know, a sense of certainty regarding the quality of your management that isn't necessarily there just because you apply OKRs, right? Because OKRs can mean very different things. And they've also been developed um, and shaped in a specific context, right? Starting with Intel and then being popularized by Google and so on that are very specific environments with very specific kinds of people and kinds of projects uh, and so on. So what we felt that with that new venture, OKRs would almost be an overkill in terms of management and overhead and, and, and so on. So uh, what we did is we set just very specific time-bound uh, outcome goals that we wanted to achieve. And then we tried to reverse engineer what that would mean on a milestone basis getting there right so we would say okay in six months we want to have that kind of prototype that is able to do this 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 and that um and then we worked back and reverse engineered what that means on a monthly basis for 
certain milestones, right? Almost like almost like a roadmap. Um, and then try to break those down into, okay, what does that mean uh, in terms of, you know, features, insights, testings, you know, um, user testings that we need to run and so on. And just try to make those, I wouldn't necessarily say measurable, but intelligible and understandable. Um, and then just try to keep tabs on those things, right? So, so that was generally it because we didn't have a product out, right? That would generate lots of objective quantitative market data for us that we can look at and based off of, um, we could, you know, iterate the product. No, we needed to build zero to one. So there was a lot of things that we needed to look at qualitatively and internally. Um, so that, that was primarily, um, how we approached it. And so from, from the moment that we knew, okay, you know, first shipment now will be soon, um, where we didn't yet know that we will have to um, pull the plug. Uh, the shipment will be soon. Then obviously we started developing a whole set of KPIs around, you know, the financials uh, basically, right? So the revenue margin uh, for the different channels, um, uh, of course, uh, return rates, right? Or keep rates uh, that are that are important. Um, then sort of more on the, on the product specific side, things that um, we have a lot of experience with is product adherence, right? So how you can track very early adherence and how does that correlate with long-term uh, adherence to a product, right? So if you just launch something in your first cohort um, is only at, you know, day 10 or day 20, you don't really have data or you have no data at all on long-term adherence. But even from that early behavior, you can make predictions for long-term adherence, right? So based off of that, we would define certain metrics that we wanted to see. And we knew that if we hit those metrics, then that's a good indicator. And if we don't, then we probably need to look into the product a little bit more um, in, in, in certain areas. So yeah, that, that was basically the, the set. But yeah, as I said, <clears throat> when we pulled before we pulled the plug. So um, yeah, when we had to or made the decision to put to to shut down Stadium or put that back uh, into the drawer. I mean, it's, it comes down as so often it comes down to financials, right? Where we said, okay, um, in order to get the project to the scale that, that we want to get it to, and that is part of our business plan, um, we need to invest, you know, X amount of money for, you know, product development, for marketing, for team, of course, right? With, as I said, dozen of people. Um, and yeah, so if the, if the timeline just moves back a lot, then you have to be, or you, you need, yeah, you need to be really sober and just look at that and just try to evaluate it uh, holistically, zooming out and not just stumbling from like one change into the next, but zooming out and say, okay, like for, with all of the changes that have, have happened over the past six to nine months, how would we assess the situation now had we not gone through everything before? Because that's some cost and it's really hard to do psychologically. But I think as, a, as, as managers and, and leaders with responsibilities, what we need to do, right, is say, okay, yeah, we invested a lot, but let's, let's regard that as some cost and just look at where we are now. And with all of the information that we have now, given the market, given financials, given supply chain, um, if we zoom out, what would we do had we not gone through all of that before? And there we came to the decision that, okay, given all of that, we need to put a stop to this now, right? And um, and then that's basically what we decided to do. I'm just wondering, in a company of this size, uh, if you launch the product uh, 
at what point do you do the sales? Is it like a lean startup approach that you sell as soon as possible and you have like a beta users and you say like, hey, we'll deliver it in one year or two years and you collect money to just, you know, it's a way of validation or do you have different approach here? Like, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just wondering yeah. how it works. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good question. And that's something that we have also been asking ourselves uh, for a long time, how we want to approach this, right? And um, there are a couple of variables that come into play here. And I think depending on the importance of those variables to you as, as you know, as a management team or as a company, as a venture, um, you can come to different conclusions. Um, so one of the variables obviously is, you know, financing. Okay, can we almost pre-finance the further development of the product, um, which would mean, okay, selling early. Um, but not yet shipping and then using that money to further fund the product. We did that to some degree, but we didn't want to overdo it because it's also very risky. Um, and <clears throat> the other one is to say that, hey, or the other variable is to say, okay, we want to understand uh, what kind of desire there is for such a product. Um, but there you also run the risk of, um, you know, the earlier you try to test market desire for something the less that something you're trying to test will be the thing that you actually want to build right so if you do not have in in our case uh, with stadium a product that is very uh, both technical and design driven where you need to do a lot of work to make it work and make it work properly which is also a prerequisite for being able to do mundane things like create marketing materials, right? That work so well that they could actually spark the desire in the market. And if you don't have that yet, right? And if you're at a 60, 70% level, but you want to test, you need to be very careful what exactly you're testing, right? Because if you don't have the thing yet that you want to know whether it's really interesting for people in the market or not, like what is the next best thing that you can test with already now? And sometimes that gap from what you can have early and test with early, so test purchase intent, test market desire, not even speaking of, you know, prototype user experience testing. Um, if that gap to the thing that you actually want to build is too big, then you also at a certain point need to say, okay, um, we cannot rely so heavily on uh, purchase intent testing early on. And we need to wait with that a little bit longer, a little bit, you know, when it comes closer to the finish line and we actually have more to show of what we then eventually really want to sell. Um, so yeah, all of these, these things came together. Um, in the end, we did do pre-sales in, in different phases, but we kept it at a rather low level. And, um, and then we, we basically went full sales mode uh, just a few weeks before we knew that we'd be able to ship. Okay. It was a huge project. The stadium was a huge project, and now you're building another venture. And I'm wondering about the lessons learned. You say like, hey, this time when we build the next next uh, big thing, like we do this, 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 and this differently. We organize teams differently. We set different uh, goals or objectives or the timelines. Um, could you tell me more about your lessons learned out of this project and? How do you, you know, uh, approach the, the new venture? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that generally we, I mean, we have learned a lot of things, right? So you learn from every kind of project and you learn from 
Now, I wanted to say from every kind of failure, but that's not true. I actually, I think that, which is also a mental model of mine, I think that um, it's, not learn, uh, it's not failure that creates learning, but it's failure times reflection that creates learning, right? So you need to reflect on the failure to create learning. If you don't reflect on it, it's almost like a formula. If it's zero, then the whole thing goes to zero, right? So I think you can also fail and keep failing and failing and failing and learn anything. Um, so I don't like it when people say, oh, yeah, it was a failure, but at least we learned something. I was like, ah, ah, did you really? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so um, not wanting to sound overconfident on this, but I think that we, we, we learned a lot. What I definitely personally uh, took from it is, uh, I would say primarily two things, one of, one of which, the second one I, I think I spoke about already. So one is, number one is that um, I think, I mean, as a company, uh, here at Freeletics, obviously we want to live a culture, a work culture of, you know, empowerment and empowering teams and, and including people into decision making and uh, just giving a lot of um, empowerment to people and just pushing down the responsibility for also decision taking down to the team um, wherever possible um, to make people, you know, involved and, uh, you know, feel that they're also contributing to the bigger, the bigger whole and then also make it better that way. I think there is a limit to that, though. And one of the specific learnings that I took very uh, from from this project specifically is that when you are early in a phase, as well as um, you know, in a phase where it becomes super hot, right, where you need to, where things really need to be on point, I think you need to close more doors more quickly yourself as a manager. Um, so I think one of the learnings that I took is that going forward in, in projects that are very complex, I personally, I need to be quicker in saying, hey, you know, there are these seven options, but we will not go through all of these options with the team. We will not have a democratic process and deciding like what of these are the best options. I, as a manager, I say these five are out of the game. Here are three reasons why. Maybe I talk to one or two people because of it, but instead of, you know, blocking a week or two and going through these, I'll decide it in one hour, right? And then I'll, I'll be accountable for it. But I'll say no. And I don't want you to think about those five things anymore. Even if you think they're good, I made the decision, get over with it. And now these are the two that we're talking about. Let's find out which of these two work best. So I think that is something um, that needs to be done, uh, especially in very complex projects um, early and more, more assertively, right? That assertion needs to be based on, on empathy for people who want to contribute, right? So you can't just say like, hey, you know, shut up, like I decide, but, um, it also needs to be, it just needs to be contextualized as, hey, you know, if we don't close those doors, we will lose ourselves in just finding and trying to find the optimal solution where either, you know, we'll never find it or it will just take too long. And actually having the third best solution very early and then executing on that is actually better because it's still good enough versus trying to find the best solution, but it just takes forever, right? And it makes everyone uncertain along the process. So that is one of the learnings. The other learning, I would say, and that's that's one I think I spoke to already, is <clears throat> basically the need for us as, as managers and leaders to be able to zoom out and in certain intervals, and that can be depending on project, you know, on a weekly basis, can be on a monthly, quarterly, or even, you know, um, yearly basis, is to say, hey, we need to zoom out and then look at the state of the project that we have, look at, you know, the context, uh, look at what's ahead of us and treat it as if we were looking at this for the first time with the information that we have right now. 
because I think the default mode for us as as human beings, right, and then therefore also as managers and as leaders, is to say that, or the default mode is that we look at the things that come in and the changes that come in one by one, right? Okay, there's change A, right? This with you know supply chain or with you know these kind of people we can hire, or this takes longer, or you know finance here, or our oh, product doesn't work there. And then say, okay, like with this thing, what do we need to do now so that we can still maintain or achieve our goals that we set up? Okay, and then we change something. And then the next thing comes and then we change something. But maybe had we zoomed out and looked at all of these things together as a system, like all of the things that have changed, we might have come to a very different conclusion versus just going through it step by step and looking at each part. And I think it's difficult. It's difficult to do that, right? But I think that zooming out and looking at um, looking at a situation more holistically and then asking yourself, okay, given everything that has changed now and trying to ignore all of the emotional investment that we have made already, um, what is the best path going forward, right? Treat everything in the past as sunk cost. Obviously, you've gained information, but that you have at hand now, but everything you've done, it is sunk cost. Um, and look at it that way and say, okay, what's the best way forward now? And I think that is something... Um, that we did eventually, but uh, I think you can never do enough of. So very often the answer will be no, we keep going. Let's just find another way. 90% of the time that's going to be the answer. But 10% of the time the answer is going to be no, we need to pivot strongly. We need to do something very different. And you might arrive to that at that conclusion earlier if you looked at things holistically, zoomed out, and treated the passes on cost versus trying to arrive at that right conclusion just step by step in in German we say salami tactic which just basically means you have a you have a like a piece of salami and then you cut like very thin slices and you look at every thin slice um it's a very German saying uh, yeah um, thanks um, uh, I'm always super interested personally about the company structures how they are built uh, how they are managed, how there are goals around it, uh, around the, the people inside the companies, that how, how it is that they are such a perfect um, uh, organism, right? Uh, working perfectly. So, could you tell me about your uh, team structure, like as an MD, to whom do you report? Uh, and for what kind of like the specific things are you responsible? And the second question is, who is your partner in crime? So with whom do you work on hand-in-hand uh, uh, hand to make it work, does those ventures uh, work? Yeah. So the first one, whom I report to is very simple, is the CEO. Um, so I report to the CEO. We, we talk about a lot of things. So Daniel, our CEO, and I, we talk about a lot of things. Um, on a almost on a daily basis, at least on a, on a weekly basis, or two or three times per week, um, whether that's in one-on-one -on -one environments or uh, asynchronously through Slack, uh, whatever it is. But you know, a bunch of also ad hoc things, right? So just also bouncing ideas off of each other um, for many different things. So, but regarding so core responsibilities, it's literally everything from starting to think about what could be a, a next step for Freeletics in terms of adding, you know, business, adding a new product, uh, you know, adding parts or adjacent parts of the bigger market to where we are now. 
is literally starting to think about what could that be and why and how would that fit into our overall strategy? Like what kind of product could it be and what kind of area um, at, at what kind of scale with what kind of timeline? What are the scenarios here at literally starting at that to then narrowing it down and defining the decision process that you follow to arrive at a decision? Sometimes um, that process needs to be very thorough and you need to go through a lot. And sometimes there is just one or two or, or there are one or two th factors that will heavily determine um, what you want to select. And then, you know, 98% of everything falls off the table quickly. Um, so defining that. And then once you start actually working on something, it's also, it's depending a little bit on what it is, but um, also given my personal skill set and experience working with Freeletics and other digital products, um, it can also be product conceptualizing and very early product building even that I do, that I do personally. So it's very, is very diverse uh, in, in that regard. And once we started, or once we start building uh, a new product, conceptualizing it, executing on it, um, then it also becomes more and more a go-to-market strategy. So also um, being responsible for that. So how, um, what are the different channels that we imagine we'll generate traffic from? How does that relate to the user base that we currently have versus um, opening up a new user base? Um, what does that mean in terms of monetization of existing reach? What does that mean in terms of building new reach? Um, what are the different touch points with the products that we already now have, or won't there be any touch points at all? Um, so even thinking about these things uh, later on then. So it, it really is a whole, I would say a whole portfolio of, of everything that you can imagine when you, as almost as a founder of, of something new, you have to think about, right? So that's really my role It's like a, a mini a mini founder within within a company and uh, so partner in crime i have um one person uh yannick's his name uh, who's also now a good friend that i've been working with uh Freeletics now for the past couple of years together at these uh at these ventures um and with stadium we have been uh co-mds co um for for this one and we have a very complementary skill set right so i'm a very strongly a product guy so i come very strongly from uh, the product side of things uh, product strategy, product concept, early product development, um, building product teams, and just generally product leadership. Where Yannick uh, comes very strongly from, you know, a more business and marketing oriented side and operation side a little bit. So um, yeah, we work together on a, on a lot of these things. And as I said before, uh, depending on the on the state of the project, uh, we add more T-shaped people or then more specific people over time, and those can be both from um, inside the company, right on a on a on a shared level, right. So when it comes to marketing, for example, we have a fantastic marketing team uh, at Freeletics that uh, will, will obviously support us with uh, everything that we need for for something new. Um, but it can also be you know hiring uh, someone who, uh, of course, if we need specific roles that we don't have internally. So yeah, it it really depends, and as I said, it scales and, and builds over time as we go, depending on depending on what the needs are. Okay. Um, let's jump a bit to zero to one, uh, product approach. I, I really like when you, when you told, told me about it and you make a really good example about the Peloton bike. Mm. Um, so maybe you can tell, uh, like one more time about the, uh, example of this Peloton bike and explain the concept of zero to one. It's, I think it's really interesting approach to building the product. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, 
Absolutely. So the zero to one building, I mean, zero to one is nothing that originated with me. Obviously, there's this uh, famous uh, book. Uh, was that Peter Thiel? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I think yeah. Peter Thiel's book, zero to one. Um, but what I mean with zero to one is really building, so creating something out of nothing, basically. Now, what is, what is the, the opposite of zero to one? It's one to one to one or one to 1.2 or 1.2 to 1.3 is, is iteration, right? It's iteration of something that exists already. And that in and of itself is very difficult and hard, right? Uh, don't get me wrong. And it's, it's extremely important. And we've been iterating with our core product for Lettics Coach for a decade, all right? And gone from like one to 1.1 and now are at like, I don't know, 5.8 or something like that. So um, that in and of itself is difficult. But the zero to one, I think is a an entirely different beast in, in, in certain regards. Because when there doesn't exist anything that you can iterate, you need to take a leap and start building something where you don't really know whether that will work or not. And we, especially I think in the broader startup environment, especially in the digital space, we all have that natural tendency towards that, you know, early testing and iteration and like testing a few things here and there and just trying to get feedback and so on. And as valuable as that is, when it comes to zero to one building, that can also be dangerous because when usually when we build a digital product and especially one that is not super straightforward, but a little more complex and has a little bit more components, you need to look at that product as a system. And as we know from systems theory, the system is not just the sum of its parts, right? It's the sum of its parts times the interaction between those different parts at different scales. And understanding or getting an understanding of how that will work in the future is very difficult if you try to do that with looking at only the parts, right? So when it comes to uh, zero to one building, we need to understand what the lowest level version of the overall system is that we want to build that we can test versus saying let's just carve out a part of the system that we can build early and test that because how that part of the system functions might be very different from how that part as a contributor to the whole system function so now coming to peloton and, and uh, that example if you look at Peloton, who, you know, despite everything that has uh, happened with them in, in the past couple of years, they obviously have revolutionized a part of the home fitness uh, market. They've uh, built a revolutionary product, not because the spinning bike that they have so revolutionary, but because the system that they built and um, where the spinning bike is a part of is revolutionary. It has been revolutionary. And so the system that Peloton has is they have a spinning bike with a large screen and on that screen, there are instructors with a certain personality and a certain character and a certain branded environment that give you a certain kind of inspiration and motivation with a certain kind of music and a certain kind of workout with a certain kind of brand vibe attached to it that can spill over into you wanting to buy apparel that makes you feel different when you're on the bike versus if you don't wear that apparel. So it is, if you want to break down the whole product experience of peloton you need to break it apart not just in oh yeah there's a bike and you bike right and many 
people, I often see this when they make fun of something like Peloton or other things. Say, oh yeah, it's just a bike. And I say, no, it's not just a bike. It's a whole system that gives you an experience where the bike is a part of. But um, it needs to come together with, yeah, it's a bike and you sit on it. And that's akin to sitting on a spinning bike somewhere in a random spinning class or just having a spinning bike at home is a lot cheaper. But then it also comes together with all of that immersiveness of the music and the inspiration and the feeling that you get from the instructor, right? And then that creates a different mental context. So it's a whole system that creates that experience. And now if you want to see, okay, how does that system, how, how can that work? Like, how can we test that? Obviously, you can test only the bike and say, how does it feel for people to sit on the bike? And it's like, yeah, we know that. We know that from spinning. But that doesn't tell you much about the whole system that is Peloton in this case, right? It doesn't tell you much about that whole immersiveness, that whole context that people are in when they're sitting on the bike. So having an early prototype of something like the Peloton experience is not just having the bike. And it's not just, um, you know, being in front of the screen and looking at something while you're on the bike. No, it needs to be a low-level, simplified version of all of the, or at least most of the important components that will build the system in the future. And so it's not enough to just say, hey, our MVP, right? We Peloton, our MVP is a spinning bike. Like, yeah, that can work or not, but, you know, it's not really an MVP of the, the Peloton system. That's an MVP of, you know, a fancy bike in the future. So the MVP needs to be something that's the scaled-down version of all of the variables that come together where the bike is just one part of. Um, another analogy that, that I like is the analogy of a car where um, what you often see is, hey, the MVP of a car is a bicycle, right? Where I agree with, but I think it's there's some wisdom contained in that that um, we need to make explicit, right? So the MVP of a car is maybe a bicycle because it's a low-level version of the system that gets you from place A to place B in a certain way compared to how it would be had you to walk the distance. And the low-level MVP version of a car is not a tire. You can test tires and improve tires once you have the car and just see which tires are the best ones for that car, for that system. But you don't give a tire to people or just a steering wheel, right, or a trunk or a hood and tell them, how do you like that? That's, that's the MVP of our car. And they say, what do I want with a tire? But hey, you know, it's a tire. It's cool. It, like it rolls down the hill. It's amazing. It's like, yeah, it's amazing fun as a functional part of the system that's a car. But in and of itself, it doesn't tell you anything about whether the car will work, right? So a bicycle is much better. It's like, hey, how do you like something that requires a lot less effort for you to get from place A to place B, right? Um, and it puts you also in a different environment. Like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, cool. Now let's keep working on that, right? And then this is like a motorcycle and then you turn it into a car and then into a plane, whatever it is. Um, and, and yeah, I really, I really think about zero to one product building uh, through that lens. And if you take the example of Freeletics very early on, like 10 years ago now, over 10 years ago now, when we started testing Freeletics and the concept of Freeletics, we didn't just test workouts. We didn't just tell people, hey, there's a workout that has 20 burpees, 20 this, 20 that, now do it, right? Then to just see how that works. No, we very early on, we gave all of our workout names, right? So we wanted people to talk about it. 
we gave all of our workout structures that are easy to remember. So it's not 22 of these and then 30 seconds of that and then, you know, turn around and then, you know, make a headstand. No, it's, it's like 50, 40, 30, 100, 100, 100, 50, 50, 50. So we gave it structure. Then we told people, hey, do it as fast as possible and exactly that way with that range of motion. Because if you don't, you will not get the star, which was our symbol for you did it in the way that's comparable, right? So we added, it was workout. It was, so bodyweight workout. It was high intensity. It was uh, comparability. It was structure. Then we told people, hey, um, on a Facebook group, so back then Facebook groups were still a thing, right? We were talking 2013. Um, we told them like, hey, whenever you've done any of these 10 workouts that we gave Greek god names to and that we defined, like post them in the Facebook group and post your time and then add a star to it if you did it in the right version and don't add a star if you did it in a modified version. So that obviously, that uh, all of a sudden added the kind of like comparison and social status and so on, right, to that group. And people started becoming more competitive and they actually wanted to go out and do more workouts. And they probably wouldn't have done that had we not added all of these elements. And then our insights for, ooh, do these bodyweight workouts work for people would probably have been very different. And we only tested that. And we might have come to the conclusion that, ah, you know, bodyweight workouts, like who cares about that? And that's also what early investors, uh, potential investors uh, told us athletics. They were like, no one cares about that. And it was boring, it was bodyweight workouts, who cares? Like, it's not bodyweight workouts. It's bodyweight workouts as a part of a whole system that's community, that's structure, that's brand, that's language, is competition, is motivation, it's inspiration, right? All of that together is what our product is, not just bodyweight workouts. And yeah, so long story short, zero to one, you need to understand what the one is, what the whole system is, and then walk it back step by step and say, okay, at which points in time can I test what kind of version of that that resembles the ultimate system that I want to build good enough or well enough and is not just one part of that system that I want to test. That I can do later and that's important for iteration later on, right? When you have a working system and you know the whole system works and now I can look at different parts individually, right? And how can I improve those, right? Certain flow here, certain experience there. But yeah, that is basically how I think about zero to one. I heard about the mental models for the first time from the Charlie Munger. Yes, uh, yeah. Quartering grind uh, of... Uh, uh, Warren Buffett, yeah. Warren Buffett, yeah. And the second time when I read the Thinking Fast and Slow. I, uh, Daniel Kahneman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kahneman. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I saw your blog, you are super into those mental models, but maybe you can start with the basic. Could you explain what the mental model is and maybe give some examples? Yes, of course. So I run a blog, quick plug here, it's called Mind Vault, right? Um, so it's like a, a, a vault for ideas, right? A mind vault. Um, and in that uh, in that blog, I'm trying to convey certain ideas and concepts and frameworks, which I summarize as mental models, uh, to people and just trying to make people interested in thinking about very different parts of the world, or parts of reality, parts of experience that can help them in their both daily personal and business life, right? Now, what are mental models? So to me, mental models are frameworks, concepts, 
that we can use to simplify complex situations, that we can make to gain new perspectives on situations that we otherwise, with our default thinking mode, wouldn't get. And they can help us make decisions better because we can understand better what's really important, what are the influences between different components of decisions, and so on. Um, so yeah, in, in general, a mental model is a framework that helps you understand what's in front of you, helps you understand reality yourself and yourself in reality, basically, a little bit better, a little bit differently, and helps you simplify, make better decisions, analyze better, gain better perspectives, and therefore act better in the world, both personally and in, and in business life. And those mental models, uh, they can come from very different uh, areas, right? So typically uh, with MindVault, also with the blog, I pull mental models from science. So it can be from physics, right? I'm a little bit of a, my hobby is like quantum mechanics and, and all of that stuff, which is a whole story in and of itself, but there's a lot of learnings that you can actually gain from, from that area. So it can come from physics or um, other areas of, uh, of science, right? It can come from biology. Many mental models come from psychology. Uh, and I think that many valuable mental models also come from philosophy, uh, very, very interestingly. And so it's not really about, you know, what kind of area they come from and what the headline of, of the, the subject is. It's more the structure of the model and how it helps you think about and rethink situations that are in front of you. Now, a couple of examples uh, that I could could go through in a couple of sort of like my um, my <laughs> my favorites uh, in terms of mental models, and I can just list a few, give a short description, so that also listeners can can get an you know an an overview of uh, you know all the different directions that sort of mental models can can go into. So a couple of mental models that I that I like a lot um, is maybe you can start with the ones that maybe are a little bit more familiar to people is uh, Occam's razor, for example, that comes from science, right, and scientific. Uh, uh, research where we say that, hey, if we have several explanations for something, the one that's the simplest explanation most likely is the correct one. Doesn't mean it is always the correct one, but most likely is the correct one. Why is that? Because if you have fewer parts that come together for, need to come together for an explanation to be correct, it's just more likely to be correct because each of these parts could be wrong, right? So if you have a very complex explanation for something, it could be right, but it's just less likely to be right vis-a-vis -vis a explanation for something that's just a lot simpler, right? And that's Occam's Razor, it's a mental model. And then if you try to understand something, it's like, okay, what's the simplest explanation I could explain this? And that's the most likely uh, explanation for it. Another one is another razor mental model is Henlon's razor. Many people don't know this, but Henlon's razor just says that things that go wrong or go in a certain way that you don't like it's more likely due to incompetence of people than malice. So it's more likely that things that go wrong are based on people not being competent enough to make them go right than based on people deliberately wanting them to go wrong, right? Where a lot of conspiracy theories are always based on, you know, all of these people have, you know, bad intentions and they wanted things go wrong. And that's why these and these things go, went wrong because they benefit off of that in such and such way. Where many of these you can just explain by, you know, maybe person A, person B, person C are just not as competent as we think they made mistakes, right? They were just incompetent here, their communication, decision making, and that's why that's the case. Doesn't mean that it's always true, but it's more likely 
that incompetence is the reason than malice for things to go wrong. Uh, another one that I like um, that comes from statistics, for example, is regression to the mean, right? Mean regression, which is something that everyone who's familiar with re statistics will now say, yeah, of course, obviously. But people who are not so familiar with statistics think, what is that? It means that if you have a, a distribution of things that can happen, for example, revenue over time, right? Or performance of employees over time, then you have a mean, right? An average over time, right? Imagine a graph where you have different dots, like a scatter plot, and then you have the regression line and that gives you the mean. And if you now have extreme outliers that are above or below that mean, mean regression just means that over time, it is very likely that the next observations you will have will be more closer to the mean again than the ones that you had before, right? And what that tells you is that, hey, if you have, you know, someone who performs extremely well, then, and they haven't performed so well before that, or you don't know how they have performed before, then it is likely that over time they will perform a little bit worse than they have before, not because there are external reasons to it necessarily, but because their mean performance is just lower than what they have shown before. So, and you see this with sports stars uh, very often, right? Where there's this uh, famous um, effect, I think, especially in the US, where they call it the sports illustrated effect, right? So someone who has become like super successful in their sports, like in, I don't know, basketball or swimming, whatever it is, they, they get on the cover of Sports Illustrated very often. And then afterwards, they found that people tend to perform worse after Sports Illustrated than before, right? They call it, oh, yeah, they became so overconfident once they got onto the cover of Sports Illustrated, and now they perform worse because of it. That usually, that's not the case. It's, you can explain that by mean regression, because it means that for someone to get on the cover of Sports Illustrated, they must have performed extremely well just before. If someone performs extremely well, it is likely that they have just performed for a period of time over their mean performance, which then also means that next time you measure their performance, they will likely be closer to the mean again because it's the mean, right? You tend to be close to the mean, but there are outliers. So whether or not they're on Sports Illustrated, they would have performed worse either way, right? So there's nothing to do with Sports Illustrated. It's just a Sports Illustrated cover just comes right at the point where at the peak of the performance, away from the mean. So that's mean regression. Um, a couple of other things that we can uh, go through quickly is, so one that I think is extremely important is uh, higher order consequences. That is a mental model uh, that comes from basically systems thinking more or less, which says that all of the things that you do have an effect. But those effects will have effects. And those effects of the effects will also have effects down the line, right? So second-order consequences are the consequences of the consequences of your actions. And even higher-order consequences are further down the line. Now, it becomes increasingly hard to predict what those consequences will be. But at least on the second, sometimes third order, um, you can reasonably predict what you will do, right? So, for example, for us as, as managers and as leaders, the way you, um, you know, treat a team member, the way you speak in front of the team, the way you set goals for a team, that will have an immediate effect on how they work and how they execute um, and whether or not they achieve certain things. But the way that they act, that effect on them, the way that they act, 
that will also change the future in a different way, right? That will have further consequences down the line. Maybe the short-term consequence here is, yeah, yeah, they will achieve that faster and it's clearer, but they will also lose some kind of sense of self-reliance, right? And autonomy, and that will have consequences over time, right? So second-order consequences basically apply all the time, right? In, in our relationships, you can, you know, I can, if I'm in, in an argument with my wife, I can say something that will just make her do something that I want, but then the consequence of that will be that next time, you know, um, she might not be willing to do X or Y, or, you know, she will um, hold it over me in, in, in some regard or whatever it is, right? So, um, yeah, those are higher order consequences. And then maybe one, one of the last ones, just to give a, a full picture of the different areas that those mental models can go into, is... What I love is the, the so-called region beta paradox, which is something that almost no one has heard of before. Um, and that region beta paradox, also mental model, that basically tells you there very often in life, both personal and business, there is a certain state of a situation that is worse because it's slightly better, right? So that's the where the paradox comes in. Now, to explain what that means, if you think of someone who wants to get, now going back to our like car and walking analogy from before, if you look at someone who wants to get from place A to place B, you can say that, okay, if you know, I want to go to the office from where I live. Now, if I live you know, 500 meters from the office, then I will walk, most likely. I should walk. Maybe I'll take a bike, but I'll walk. Um, okay, if it's five kilometers away, nah, I might take the car, right? So that's clear. But what's in between? If it's a kilometer away, I might still walk. But I could also take the car, but I might still walk. But had I taken the car, I would have actually been there faster. Right with 500 meters, it's not so clear because I could just walk out there, go over. I'm there in a couple of minutes. With the car, I need to go down to the garage. Right, need to um, get it out, blah, 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 like blah, find a parking slot, and so on. So there is an area, in this case, between 500 meters and I don't know, maybe one or two kilometers, where I would still walk. I would still decide to do one thing, but in terms of like how fast I get to the office. I'll actually be worse off versus would I live further away from the office because then I would definitely take the car, right? And I would be there faster. So um, something where that applies to, I think, in area in all of our lives is if we are super happy and everything is good, great. Things are going well. If everything is really bad and things are going to shit hardcore, that's also good because that gives us motivation to change things. But if things are in the middle, in the region beta, right? It's not alpha, it's not gamma, it's region beta. Things are in the middle, they're just so-so, we can get comfortably numb, right? It's not good, so we don't feel happy, but it's not so bad that we're willing to do something about it. That's where we're stuck in that like chasm of mediocrity. And I think that applies to... Business also many different aspects where we say, you know, if things are going great, awesome, let's double down. And if things are really going to shit, okay, we need to take a step back, pivot, make a huge change, 
really think about what we do. But if things are just so-so, they're just deteriorating into mediocrity and below slightly, we might not have the energy and the activation to really do something about it, right? We're comfortably numb in that region. So we would actually be better off if things were worse, because then we have the activation energy to do something and get to a better place afterwards. But we don't because it's just in the middle, right? So that's the region beta paradox that you can you can also apply. Yeah, there are a bunch bunch more. So I, I mean, I, I could speak about mental models and, and different kinds of mental models uh, for hours, but yeah, that's a that's a like a thin slice of it. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. I I love the example of the Sports Illustrated because this explains me one thing. There's this so-called curse of a Forbes cover. I don't know if you heard about it. Like yes, Adam yes, very Eva similar. Yes, with WeWork. Yes, uh, or Elisa but Holmes with Terano. Yes, yes, and, yes. And there's like a, this. And Sam Bankman-Fried. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, it's very similar. I think very similar. Super similar. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and 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 some of those. Cases, at least for Elizabeth Holmes and and Sam Bankman-Fried, there was actually like fraud involved, uh, so it's different. Um, the WeWork story, I think that might be slightly different, but yeah, I think it it, it can go in a similar direction, right? Where uh, we we celebrate people uh, because of extraordinary performances in, in any aspect, and then forgetting that those extraordinary experiences very likely, not necessarily, but likely, are outliers. Right, and the mean is below that. So over time, they will regress to the mean. The mean can still be good, but um, and and I think that's also important for us to understand personally. Right, if we have a fantastic run, right, if we are I don't know in sales, we have a fantastic run, which is making sale after sale after sale. We can either be in phenomenal sales manager, and that's just our average performance is just that good, or we can be a kind of good sales manager who just had an extraordinary run of performances. And then it might revert back to the mean, right? And you see that very often. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, a big football fan. Um, and there you see that very often, right? People, uh, especially young players who play a phenomenal half season or season, and then they get sold for like a hundred million. And then all of a sudden they're like way worse. It's not necessarily because they got worse. It might just be that their mean performance is just below that extraordinary season that they played, but no one really knew what their mean was, right? It's just likely that their mean is not that. It's, you know, that was an outlier. Oh, thanks. That's, that's, uh, that's super interesting. Um, but I have the, the final question that I wanted to ask you. Um, do you have any recommendations for the books, papers, uh, courses? Something that helped you to become who you are today as a MD, as a leader of the team, uh, what changed your mindset? Uh, I assume something with the mental models for sure. Yes, right? yes, of course, of course. Um, yeah, very interesting uh, question. So, so one again, let, let me let me plug that. But for for listeners to get some value out of it, um, in if you go to mindvaults.co. You sign up to the blog, like one of the first things that you will get is actually the resource list with uh, more than 150 resources. So blogs, uh, books, YouTube video channels, uh, podcasts, and so on, um, all filtered by different, uh, segmented into different topics and so on. Now, having said that, so uh, on the on the book side, uh, what I 
I think, especially over the past couple of, let's say, years, five years, maybe, where I've benefited from the most aren't necessarily business books, right? The typical business books, the Eric Ries books and the Peter Thiel books and the uh, uh, Christiansen books and so on, although they, they're all valuable in their own regard. But um, for me, very valuable has been uh, to read Nisam, uh, Nassim Taleb. So, you know, Black Swan, uh, Anti-Fragile. Uh, actually, I like um, uh, Fooled by Randomness. Uh, which is extremely good and teaches you a lot about the, the more statistical side of things and a lot of mental models I got so statistically I got from that. Um, sometimes a little bit difficult to read, but extremely valuable. Um, on that side as well, I mean, Daniel Kahneman, like thinking fast and slow is a classic. I think I read that in, in, in uni. It changed a lot of things um, for me and, and how I look at things and how I look at thinking itself, thinking process, decision making. Um, that for sure. I would say also that for me personally, um, and that might not be everyone's cup of tea, but for me personally, I think what has made me a better leader, like empathetically and towards people, has actually been um, engaging with Eastern traditional philosophical and spiritual ideas. So like Buddhism, Zen, um, these kinds of these kinds of ideas and tying in a little bit to Western Stoicism, um, but uh, foundational aspects of their, of, you know, um, impermanence and uh, having to let go and uh, the the fundamental nature of dissatisfaction or the dissatisfactory reality of life, right? Where people say life is suffering actually means uh, dissatisfactoriness of life if you translate it um, uh, originally. And so these kinds of ideas also shape certain mental models for me that I apply sort of in, in day-to-day life, you know, tying it back to a phase like stadium, for example, that we had to shut down where you can say, okay, that's ex- extremely, extremely hard uh, or an extremely hard decision uh, for us to do. But then it's um, it's valuable to have those more philosophically grounded mental models, right? So going in, in, in that direction and reading a lot in that direction. Also, Alan Watts, for example, right, um, has been uh, very meaningful uh, to my own life uh, in that sense. Now, what I want to throw in there is uh, more on a just not necessarily book, but more like content and blog perspective is obviously I think everyone likes the guys in Naval Ravikant where um, it's just has a lot of very interesting takes uh, on things. I would throw Paul Graham in there. I think Paul Graham has a fantastic blog. You can just read basically anything and you'll gain an insight. Um, he's, uh, I think, the I, don't, I think founder, co-founder of Y Combinator. Um, so Paul Graham uh, is great for that. Um, and then when it comes to blog, I would also go, uh, to Farnham Street, which is Shane Parrish's blog, uh, primarily on mental models. He also has a nice podcast. Um, that's not called Farnham Street. It's called, uh, the knowledge project, um, where it's a lot about thinking and, and mental models. And he also has a book, which I think is the great mental models volume one and two or so. So Shane Parrish has, has a lot of good stuff. Um, so yeah, that that's on the book side and on, on the podcast side, um, I I I really I listen to I don't know like dozens of hours of podcasts uh, every month, and uh, I do listen to to the to you know the typical mainstream like Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, uh, all of that. I do listen to a lot of uh, you know Andrew Huberman, Lex Friedman, like all of that stuff, just because they have so interesting people there, right? And they have very interesting conversations. Whether or not I agree with uh, all of that is not the is not the point, but 
is more, you know, you get different perspectives, ideas, and it just forms your model of the world more on a meta level, right? But like how to think about things versus just getting like very concrete answers. Um, so that I like, I like modern wisdom, uh, Chris Williamson's uh, podcast, very interesting, very good questioning, very interesting topics, a lot of psychologically focused um, topics there, very interesting. And uh, I like uh, Naval Ravikant's podcast, which is, uh, I don't know when he has last released an episode, but uh, he has these like two minute episodes, right, where he just talks about something for two minutes. Very often it's like an excerpt from like a book or something, but it's very interesting, right? It's like a, you can listen to that two minutes, like two or three at a stretch or at a time. And then you all of a sudden you're loaded with new ideas. So, so uh, I like, I like that as well. So yeah, it's, um, it's a bunch of, um, it's a bunch of different, different formats and, and, and topics, but yeah, that's, that's about it. I would say. Awesome. Thanks for that. Uh, the, the one like uh, thing that I noticed after making those uh, podcasts, when I asked this question, like all of the leaders uh, are naming books or resources more related to um, like uh, soft skills or patterns of thinking or uh, autobiographies. And almost none of the guys mentioned any book related to, the, to their job. It's more about like how to deal with people, more or less like a yeah. framework. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I can, I can imagine. I'm not surprised, uh, but I think it's also a, I think it's a, it's stage dependent, right? It depends on the stage that you're in. Now I've been in the digital product space for ten years now, and um, I've been like very early on, even when as I was still in university, I started with Freeletics ten years ago. And I was immediately thrown into a leadership position, right? I was uh, running the research and development department back then. I started building a team when I was still a student myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so I started um, on that leadership track very early. Um, and now I'm at a stage where, you know, I, I just benefit mostly from that more like soft skill, meta level thinking models uh, approach. But very early on, I benefited a lot from, you know, learning about different, you know, organizational structures and learning about, you know, the, the Peter Drucker principles, um, of managing oneself and the executive, uh, effective executive, right. And, you know, management by objectives and all of these things. And then obviously also, you know, lean startup style, Eric Ries, where it's like, okay, how can you do that in the leanest way possible and so on. And like early prototyping and going out to people and asking them and so on. So there's a lot of the, the tools and the nuts and bolts of the, the business and business, uh, management, especially in, in, in product management and product leadership, product strategy, where there are a lot of mechanics and tools you, you need to have under your belt, like you need to know of, right? You need to know how to do a strategic planning process and how to um, navigate that process and how to adjust it based on uh, your current uh, environment and your goals and so on. And those are things that I luckily learned or at least, you know, dived into dove into very early on so that the past couple of years I could spend more more on those more you know meta level things that I now benefit from the most when it comes to like my professional development awesome thanks uh Philip thanks for a great talk uh it was a pleasure to, to talk to you today yeah likewise thanks man um 
yeah, I hope we'll meet one more time to, you know, to maybe dig deeper into those mental models. Yeah, I would love to. Absolutely. Anytime. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. We got it. Cool. Uh, it was super interesting. Nice. Yeah, that was fun. Like cool conversation. I, th I think those mental models is something which is um, undervalued in our business, but it's something that we need to learn more. Yes. It's super helpful. Um, so this was definitely uh, great to talk about about this. 100%. Cool. Uh, man, I have like some gifts from my marketing, like some coffee and mark that I could oh. give you. Oh, very nice. Let, let oh. me just shoot one, one quick message. Yeah. Yeah, so just, you know. Just Ooh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Thanks so much. That's really cool. Hey, no problem. Nice. Brazilian Santos. That's that's really nice because, okay. Um, so I, I love coffee, right? So I've, we have all, kind, like, so we have an, like the, the Siebträger espresso uh -huh. fancy machine at home. We have the, for like a hand filter and like the oh, water. Okay. The drip, yeah. yeah, the drip, and then like with the te right temperature, and then and everything, and the, then different kinds of French press and mocha. Nice. Like, like we have the whole set, and we just went. So my wife and I got married last uh, last summer, mm -hmm. and so for our honeymoon, we went in November, December. We went on a four week trip to Peru and uh, Colombia. Mm -hmm. So especially in Colombia, right, we visited mm -hmm. a bunch of like coffee mm -hmm. farms and everything. So we bought a bunch of coffee. And so we're really into, into, into coffee and, and like it. Now the thing is that we have these huge bags of like, because in Colombia you can buy like one kilo bags of coffee that are really good and would cost 10x here. Yeah, yeah. So we brought a bunch. Um, but now we'll actually go starting uh, in one week um, or one and a half weeks, we'll go on sabbatical for three months, right? In April. Nice. So we just finished our last, small bag of coffee and now we only have like one to two kilo bags of coffee we don't want to open them because then they're like sitting there for yeah. three months so we were thinking about okay should we buy a new coffee whatever so now <laughs> it's perfect we just talked about this yesterday it's like oh, i need to go shopping today after work like should i buy coffee whatever so now we have great coffee like for the last two weeks right we drink a lot of coffee <laughs> So it's perfect, man. It's perfect. Thanks. Hey, man, I'm super happy because, like, I, when I was in Berlin, I, I got the, the coffee to the guy, and he said, like, I, I don't drink coffee. I only drink uh, tea, but yeah, thanks. <laughs> oh, man, so, you know, totally opposite. <laughs>